This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, Mysticism and Madness, recorded April 9th, 1995, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. In 1976, the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry, a very well-established group in New York, issued a report which said in part, the psychiatrist will find mystical phenomena of interest because they can demonstrate forms of behavior intermediate between normality and frank psychosis. This is, is not, not too long ago, 1976. This is a sort of official view of um, at least the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry, that mysticism is at best deviant and, and often, frankly, psychotic. And, of course, this has been the view in this century, until very recently, of the established psychiatric and psych psychological profession. Mystics are psychotics, they're neurotics. Uh, that's how they've been explained or explained away in terms of history. Why, uh, you know, how can we account for these strange people? And this, uh, but this association of mysticism and madness is not all that recent, it actually goes back to the very earliest of times. For instance, Merchi Iliade, who's a great scholar of comparative religions, done a lot of research, particularly uh, with sh uh, shamanism and so forth, describes the shamanic initiations the world over. And they almost always begin with some sort of sickness or delirium or trance states or epilepsy or something. There's always something, uh, in that sense, pathological about the, the uh, calling of a shaman. Uh, sometimes it's clearly a physical sickness, but often it's a kind of a mental sickness. Uh, they begin to hear voices and have visions, and they often run off away from the community and, uh, you know, sometimes eat bark and tear apart little animals and so forth, and they start acting pretty crazy. Uh, and shamans themselves, uh, the, the process of shamanizing involves bizarre sorts of behavior. Here's just a quick little description about uh, a Yakut shaman, they're from Siberia. During their ceremonies, this particular shaman gashed himself with a knife, swallowed sticks, ate burning coals. That sounds sort of bizarre. If you <laughs> if you walked in the kitchen there and you saw one of us doing that, you'd say, hey, call the men in the white suit, right? Uh, Plato, when he talked about poets and seers, and by the way, in Plato's time, poets weren't what we think of poets today. Poets were not separated from a, uh, a sacred function, performing a sacred function. They weren't just uh, individuals making a, trying to make a name for their own personal creativity. But what Plato wrote was, For the poet is an airy thing, a winged and holy thing, and he cannot make poetry until he becomes inspired and goes out of his senses, and no mind is left to him. So, so long as he keeps possession of this mind, no man is able to make poetry and chant oracles. For not by art do they speak these things, but by divine power. Therefore, God takes the mind out of the poets and uses them as his servants, and so also those who chant oracles and divine seers, because he wishes us to know that not those we hear who have no mind in them are those who say such precious things, but God himself is the speaker, and through him he shows his meaning to us. So in Plato's time, Plato associated, there's something about uh, uh, 
there's oracles and seers and poets and people who are inspired. There's a kind of madness and essentially losing your mind, taking, <laughs> having your mind taken out of you. And not only that, but mystics uh, historically have been accused by their own contemporaries of being mad. For instance, uh, Apostle Mark writes about Jesus becoming a teacher. He said, uh, when his own people heard of this, they went forth to get control of him, for they said he was out of his mind. You know, Jesus started healing and teaching people, and these big crowds came around, and these are his relatives, Mary and his and uh, his uh, brothers and sisters, and they all went down to grab him. <laughs> the boy's gone crazy, you know, bring him home. And there are a lot of uh, uh, accusations in the in the Gospels against Jesus, but he has he's possessed. The Pharisees say, why do you listen to that man? He's possessed, he's a demon in him, you know. Here's what the Quran says of Muhammad. Uh, when they hear our revelations, this is through the Quran, when they hear our revelations, the unbelievers almost devour you with their eyes. He is surely possessed, they say. So in Muhammad's time, when he started saying, hey, you know, I was up in the mountain and I got these revelations from God, they said, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. In fact, it's very interesting because he himself doubted that his own sanity when he, this started to happen to him. They came home and he told his wife and she said, no, you're not crazy. You better listen. And he went back to the cave and then the, the, the revelation itself had to confirm to him that he wasn't crazy. And they said, no, you're not crazy. It's okay. Here's what uh, the Zen hermit Hanshan wrote. Zen, uh, Hanshan was a, a Zen hermit who lived in, the, in China I, somewhere in the Middle Ages. He lived up on a mountain. When men see Hanshan, they all say he's crazy and not much to look at, dressed in rags and hides. They don't get what I say, and I don't talk their language. Pretty crazy-looking character. He probably looked a, a little bit... Look <laughs> 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 with the long hair. <laughs> give, give him a few hides, and then you get close to Hanshan. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what uh, the Kashmir saint, Lali Shwari, said. She actually complained. She said, uh, When my feet, which had carried me down countless roads, began to follow only one, I quickly arrived at my destination. Why will you people not heed my words? Uh, they're not listening to her. And there's a good reason why, why they didn't hear, heed her words, because mystics themselves often sound and act pretty crazy. For instance, Lali Shori goes on to tell us, Because of my love for God, a flood of renunciation filled my mind. I stopped tying up my hair. I threw away my sari. I wrapped myself in an old robe and went to live in a lonely place, occasionally keeping company with sadhus. Sadhus are those, uh, like Hanshan, you know, those, those renunciates who wander around India with matted uh, hair and so forth. You can picture Lali Shori, you know, living with these bunch of crazies, like people like Hanshan, these hermits, you know, all in rags and stuff. She stopped tying up her hair. She threw away her good clothes. You know, you could go down to, um, you know, the park down here and, and see a bunch of them huddled together, you know. <laughs> I'm serious. You see, we think when we picture saints in our minds, we think, uh, picture these radiant beings all dressed in white, you know. And, uh, and But if you really meet most of these people, they look like transients and bums, you know. They'd be babbling out of their minds. <laughs> 
Buddha, for instance, he left uh, a life that most people give their right arm for. Here he was, the prince in this palace, with every surrounded by every pleasure and so forth. He gave it all up to put on what a simple white, a simple a saffron robe, and became a monk, a renunciate, and wandered around again with these crazies, these sadhus and stuff. You know, he went to practice with them. I'm sure the people in in his uh, uh, palace there, his family and friends, thought he'd just gone out of his mind, lost his mind. The same is true of Catherine of Genoa. She was married, uh, she was an aristocrat, she was married to a nobleman, they had a wonderful life in Genoa and so forth, and and she just left it all, left him, left everything, uh, and went out and worked with the the poor and the sick, and she was uh, very instrumental in setting up charities and hospitals and so forth, you know. And I'm sure that in her social circle, they said, oh, that poor Catherine, she's just lost it, she's just, you know, going out, she's possessed, you know. How about St. Francis? Most of us know the story of St. Francis. He grew up in a wealthy... Uh, merchant family, you know, and uh, he was the darling of the town of uh, uh, Assisi, and uh, he went, he went out of his mind, you know, went off and started building up old ruined churches and talking to birds and, you know, things like that, and the grass and, you know. Al-Ghazali, he's a great Sufi, and uh, he writes about how he went on his spiritual path and the battle he went through. He was a professor at a university in Baghdad, which was a, a really high position in, in those days. Being a professor was, you know, professors are a diamond dozen today, but uh, there were very few of them. And he'd worked very hard to get there. It was a professor of theology, so to speak, but he was losing his faith. He lost his faith. And he was quite desperate. He went through a kind of a spiritual crisis, and he studied theology, and he studied the philosophers. He made a thorough study, and he realized the only way he was ever going to know for sure about this business of religion was to go off for the Sufis, who, again, weren't hanging around the university. They were off in the desert in these, you know, these little camps and rags and so forth. And he'd have to give up everything and go with them, because they're the only ones who actually knew, had experience. Everybody else had ideas. And he battled back and forth. He talked about every morning he would resolve to get up and he'd resolve to go off for the Sufis. And by the end of the day, as he'd say, Satan would whisper in his ear. Satan, you can read, is the ego, you know. Saying, now, now, you're very comfortable here. You worked hard to get here. Now, if you go running off, you know, you might not be able to get this position back. And he, and finally he, um, oh, he was interesting. He was uh, struck dumb. He couldn't speak. Just got up one day, couldn't speak. And the doctors of his time, the physical doctors, examined him, and they were astute enough to say, it's not a physical malady, it's a spiritual malady. There's nothing we can do. So he took that as a sign that, that you know, I mean, he literally could not go on teaching at the university, so he went off and joined the Sufis. They must have thought he was nuts. Ramana Maharshi, everybody knows about Ramana Maharshi? He's a contemporary a mystic of this century from India. Uh, as a young kid of 16 or so, a teenager who was basically interested in sports and so forth, suddenly got enlightened and ran off to this temple, and he spent several years as a catatonic, literally not speaking, just sitting, and uh, these, these little kids would come and torment him and throw stones at him and stuff like that, and he'd sort of move out of the way, but he would hardly respond at all. In, in this culture, they, they found him sitting on the church of the, the steps of the Methodist church, you know, they, they would call him and they'd take him down to White Bird and I'm sure he'd eventually end up at Sacred Heart or someplace, you know. In the, uh, Rumi, who was a, another Sufi, um, and he wrote verses like this. He said, whatever you see is profitable, flee from it. Drink poison and pour away the water of life. Curse anyone who praises you. Lend your profit and capital to the indigent. Abandon security and stay in frightful places. 
throw away reputation and become disgraced and shameless. I have tested the far-seeing intellect. After this, I will make myself mad. That's pretty crazy advice. (laughs) So this raises a question that every seeker on the path in all times and places has to face. Are mystics mad? Maybe that uh, group for the advancement of psychiatry, maybe they're right. Maybe these people are just, you know, psychotics. And maybe if you go off in a mystical path and start reading mystical teachings and trying to do what mystics say, maybe they're leading you down the road of psychosis. Niels Bohr, you know, the father of quantum mechanics, once said that if you, uh, anybody who has quantum mechanics first explained to them, if they're not shocked, they haven't understood it. And you could say the same thing about mysticism. If you're not, uh, if you don't think mystics are mad when you first read them, you haven't really realized how radical it is. There's a good question about whether they are mad or not. And, and, and the answer to the question isn't so much yes or no. We'll see. It depends on how you look at it. Let's listen to what some of the mystics say here. For instance, this should be familiar to, to most of you. Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. And seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God. Anybody know who said that? It's probably JC. JC, right. <laughs> now, what kind of advice is that? I mean, think about that. Don't take any thought for your life, what you should put on what you're going to eat and drink. Think about how much of the day you spend thinking about what you're going to put on, the clothes you're going to get next fall, what you're going to have for dinner tonight, what you're going to shop, uh, what you're going to buy at the store. How much of your time is spent worrying about what you're going to eat and drink and what you're going to put on? Think about it. He's saying this is all, don't do any of this. Seek the kingdom of God, whatever that is. Abin Arabi says, Know that you are an imagination, as is all that you regard as other than yourself an imagination. Now think about that. Saying you, I mean, you know, here, here you go around all day with this word I. We use it all the time in our, in our conversation. We use it in our head. You know, I want this, I don't want this, oh, I think I'll do this, I'll do that. And he's saying this I is imaginary. It doesn't refer to anything real. And not only that, but everything that you regard as other than yourself is imaginary. What does that mean? Is this uh, paper imaginary? Are these books imaginary? Are these people I'm looking at, they're all imaginary? Houses, cars, mountains? Some of this is so radical, when we first read it, we sort of tend to pass over it. The mind just, you know, won't, well, it just skips it. Know that you are an imagination, as is all that you regard as other than yourself an imagination. Maybe this is why Jesus would recommend don't spend so much time thinking about what you're going to dress and put on and what you're going to eat and drink, you know, because maybe you're spending an awful lot of time worrying about something that doesn't exist. The Buddha said, Therefore, whatever there be of bodily form, of feeling, perception, mental formations or consciousness, whether one's own or external, whether gross or subtle, lofty or low, far or near, 
one should understand according to reality and true wisdom, this does not belong to me, this am I not. Just a little bit what uh, Abin Arabi said here, isn't it? In other words, whatever there be of bodily form, okay, so here's a bodily form, a feeling, this could be, you know, I can, I can feel this is smooth, or it might be emotion feeling, you know, I might be a little angry or sad or something, you know. Uh, perception, that's perceptions right here. Mental formations, thoughts. Consciousness, it means, the consciousness when it's always translated from Buddhism means self-consciousness. That sense of being a person's self. He says, whatever this is, know according to reality, this is not me. This am I not. This is actually an instruction for meditation, to watch closely, to realize the thought arises, the thought arises, it passes, it's not you, it's just something arising and passing. Why does he recommend you, you observe closely and notice that these things aren't you? Here's Rumi again. <laughs> Rumi's really a wild one. If you become non-existent, it will take you to true existence. I mean, this, this sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds very paradoxical. If you become non-existence, that will take you to true existence. Notice all these, from all these different traditions, they're all revolving around this idea that there's, the self is imaginary or there's something wrong with our perceptions of self. And then what happens when you uh, become non-existent and arrive at true existence? Here's what the Upanishads, great Hindu texts say. When a man knows God, he is free. His sorrows have an end and birth and death are no more. When in the inner union he is beyond the world of the body, then the third world, the world of the spirit, is found where the power of the all is, and man has all, for he is one with the one. Now, if that isn't crazy, I don't know what is. <laughs> when you know God, you're free, uh, and birth and death are no more. I mean, what does that mean? You're not going to die. You're, all your sorrows are going to end. And then he goes off in this weirdo thing about the third world, this inner union, and, and where the power of the all is, and man has all, for he is one with the one. You know, it's like, uh, uh, psychotics say things like that, and mystics say things like that. <clears throat> JC, you know, he said, you know, I and God, we're one. Me and the Father, you know, same thing. Al-Halaj, another great Sufi, said, I am the reality, worship me. He was executed just like Jesus was for saying that. I mean, he's more orthodox Muslims than uh, they thought he was out of his mind, out of his gourd. The Buddha, after his enlightenment, announced that he had, he had conquered illusion and death, and he had uh, conquered the world of delusion, samsara. When he came down, one of my favorite stories, when he came down off the mountain, you know, off under the Bodhi tree, he spent some time up there after his enlightenment just enjoying this bliss. And finally, the gods, as the legend says, you know, convinced them to go down. Some people would listen to him, so he starts down the path, and he meets this merchant coming the other way. And he says, I am the enlightened one. And the merchant says, that's nice, and takes the other road. <laughs> and I think about New York subways, you know, when you get in a, if you've been on a New York subway, and occasionally you get some crazy people, and they start babbling, and the next stop, every the car empties, <laughs> everybody clears out in the middle of rush hour. <laughs> Here's what Catherine of Genoa says. My being is God, not by simple participation, 
but by a true transformation of my being. See, she wants to make a point. She doesn't mean she's just a little piece of God's in her or something like she participates in God. No, she says, by a transformation of my being, it's turned into God on a spiritual path. She's the one who left her, her uh, you know, wealthy husband there in Genoa. And no wonder, I mean, the, the woman was a little like a... Shankro, another great Hindu mystic, says after his enlightenment, I am reality without beginning, without equal. I have no part in the illusion of I and you, this and that. Remember what uh, uh, Abin Arabi said, who's a Sufi, you know, different tradition, said, you know, this is imaginary. This, everything that you think of as you is imaginary, and everything that you think is not you, other, I and you, this and that. I have no part in this illusion of I and you, this and that. I am Brahman, one without a second, bliss without end, the eternal, unchanging truth. Now, supposing you're uh, riding on a bus, let's say here, you know, going down to campus, and somebody gets up and starts saying this. I bet that bus clears out real quick. <laughs> These people certainly sound mad, don't they? And what's more is they mean this. This is not just poetic exaggeration, you know. These aren't just ways of being flowery. You know, some modern poets are romantically will say things. They don't really mean it, you know. But these people mean this. This is, this is the core of mystical teaching here. I've read you from all these different traditions. It's all the same wherever you go. So the question of madness, uh, when we... When we think about this, and when we really start to understand what these people are saying, we naturally, and I hope you do uh, think, are they mad or not? I hope you, that question arises in your mind. If it doesn't, as I said before, you really haven't understood what they're saying here. If the When the question arises, then, it has to be dealt with. Because otherwise it becomes an obstacle. You have to deal with it one way or another. You can't just ignore it, or you can't just pretend that they're not, that they aren't mad, or at least don't sound mad, and sort of ignore it. Think, oh, well, that's just kind of poetry. Because then you'll never really know what's being talked about. You have to face it head on. And what usually, when this, when it starts to occur to you, maybe, maybe these people are mad, it raises two things. Two obstacles, we could say. One is intellectual, and one is later on psychological. Intel the intellectual ob obstacle is doubt. I mean, maybe I shouldn't listen to all these teachings and stuff, because maybe they're crazy. And the other is psychological, because if you start doing the practices, and if you start following the path, you will begin to question yourself, am I going mad? So, both must be overcome. And doubt must be overcome first because if you, if you doubt the teachings, you won't take them seriously and you won't really then follow and do the practice and you won't get anywhere. Now I want to read you uh, a contemporary little-known mystic uh, grappling with this question. This is just after a chapter where he's been reading a bunch of quotes uh, and reading the mystics just like I've been reading you. He says, in some ways it all sounded so tantalizingly close, yet in others almost impossibly out of reach. It also sounded quite mad, 
especially sitting in my office with several new films in the works, contracts to be negotiated, budgets prepared, producers dealt with, scripts written, actors hired, phones ringing, and all the other general frantic business of modern life pressing me from every side. There were times when in the middle of a meeting with some writer or director, I'd glance out my tinted glass windows across the parking lot to the low, smoggy hills in the north, over which I would be traveling come spring, and wonder if I was really here in 20th century America going to give it all up and go chase a wild and ancient vision of eternity. Perhaps all this talk of enlightenment and gnosis, of radiant bliss and supreme consciousness and life everlasting was at best a fantastic exaggeration and at worst the collective delusion of demented minds. If so, if this vision was as insane as it sometimes sounded, then to forsake the worldly success I had struggled so hard to achieve would indeed be an eternal mistake, and one from which I might well not recover. Let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting because I told you about Al Ghazali. At the time, I hadn't read Al Ghazali. I read him uh, years later, and I recognized myself in Al Ghazali very much. But this is this gives an example of the kind of you know intellectual doubt, you, and it's good to have this doubt. It means you're really beginning to understand what's called for here. And you have to settle this question one way or another. So uh, how can we uh, settle this question? How can we cope with this intellectual doubt? Are, they, are these people mad? Well, there are three ways. First of all, examine your own beliefs. People are always mad in relation to what you believe. So if you think someone's mad, that's in relation to something. It's not just absolute that they're mad. Why? What specifically? For instance, if uh, Abina Rabi says, you're an imagination, you're imaginary, and that sounds crazy to you, then think, well, then who am I? What, when I use the word I, what does that refer to? Go look and see if you can find any I in there. Or, I mean, people have different beliefs about who they are. Some people think they're a soul. Some people think they're nothing but a body. Different cultures shape our beliefs differently. But really examine your beliefs. Find out what they are. What do, what do you really believe about reality if these people are all mad? And then ask yourself, why do you believe it? I mean, usually people believe things just because everybody around them believes it. They grew up that way. Everybody believes it. Well, everybody knows that, they say. But just because everybody believes it today ain't necessarily make it true. Everybody wants to believe the earth was flat, you know, and it ain't. I mean, in our culture anyway. <laughs> or that the earth was the center of the, the universe. Everybody, we don't realize this, but everybody believed it. it was such an obvious fact of life. Well, it's no longer believed. What everybody believes today is almost certainly going to be looked at in the future as false. If we learn anything about reading about the history of ideas and the history of what people believe... <clears throat> Go out there, speak to everybody, talk about your most uh, mundane, ordinary assumptions, and I will, uh, I would bet you, if we, if we all remember this in, in future incarnations, in a thousand years, let's all get together and I can collect my money, I will bet you that, that, that nine tenths of it is uh, considered to be nonsense. Oh, well, they were very superstitious back in the 20th century, you know. They had all these crazy beliefs. Why do you believe what you believe? Really investigate your own beliefs and investigate the source of that belief. <clears throat> and then finally, uh, in this examination of beliefs, 
most of us are, we're socialized, indoctrinated with a materialist paradigm. And this, at least to me, was a big obstacle in my spiritual path. And if, um, if you want to uh, test your beliefs in, in, if you're a hard-nosed realist, materialist, and so forth, go look into quantum mechanics. I'm not going to talk about it this morning. We talk about it occasionally at the center here. But if you still have a Newtonian view of the world, of a classical determinism, and the world is, is really a bunch of uh, little, you know, billiard balls, little atoms bouncing around, and they're all obeying the, the laws of uh, Newtonian physics and so forth, you're living in a, in a, a, a an absolute worldview. That worldview is gone as far as science is concerned. When I discovered this in my path, it was quite freeing. I didn't really understand quantum mechanics at the time, but what I did realize is, well, the scientists themselves don't know what the reality is. And if anything, all, all this means is I've been hanging on to this view of reality, which comes from the last century. It's outmoded. It's obsolete. So what are you hanging on to here for so proudly and arrogantly? You don't know a goddamn thing about what anything is. It's true. Then study mystics more carefully and more thoroughly. And why at the center we don't uh, we don't subscribe to one tradition. In all religious traditions, there are mystics. Not everybody in every religious tradition is a mystic, but you will find in every religious tradition mystics. And if you study the mystics, you will start to see that there is this commonality of message, a universal truth, just like I just read you this little sampling of little quotes here. You will start to see that over and over, the same things uh, come up, the same points are made, the same recommendations for a practice, the same pointing to something that actually is beyond any particular teaching. So you could say that uh, mysticism itself, as my, one of my teachers, Dr. Wolf, says, it's true that it isn't rational in the sense that at some point it transcends reason, but that doesn't make it irrational. And actually, the, when you really get into mysticism and you really start to understand that there are, are different ways of putting things that are complementary, much as in quantum mechanics, or that different things are true at different stages of the path and so forth, or that they're relative truths and absolute truths, you begin to see that there is a, a logic at work. There's a method in this madness, so to speak. You'll also start to uh, become convinced, or at least if, if your experience is like mine, of this, the mystics have this intersubjective agreement that transcends any particular time or place, whether it's 20th century or, or uh, five centuries ago. Unlike philosophers, unlike scientists and so forth, who different cultures, you know, they, they have no agreement. But mystics seem to keep discovering the same thing. So if this is a psychosis, it's a, it's a very consistent psychosis that keeps popping up in the same way in every time and place. Quite amazing. Through this, uh, this sort of investigation of your own beliefs and reading the mystics and so forth, again, if your experience is like mine, by, by the way, you might be convinced they are mad and go your way, and that's fine. It's not a question of uh, believing here dogmatically, it's a question of investigating for yourself. Through this, though, if you're like me, and like other people who have followed a spiritual path, a mystical path, you will begin to develop faith. Now, this is a, a dynamic faith, not faith in a, in, a, in a creed or a belief system. You will begin to develop the faith that, gee, these people really did find out something, did discover something that the rest of us don't know about. 
and it's extraordinarily valuable. And it is possible for me to find out for myself too. And then you start doing the practices and then you start finding out little by little, oh yes, if I do this meditation, sure enough, the mind does calm down. The mind does become stable. There's an inner tranquility and peace that you, you can start to experience that has nothing to do with what's going on around you. It's not dependent on anything outside. So maybe this is what the mystics mean when they say the kingdom of God is within and that any happiness that depends on outward things, external things, is a, at best a temporary happiness, and in some sense a false happiness, because it will disappear when those things disappear. But if there's something within a source of happiness that you can tap into that doesn't depend on these things, maybe you begin to understand what Jesus said when he said, I will give you to drink from uh, a well uh, which, which springs up within you and ultimately boils over into eternal life. Oh, so by your own experience, you begin to understand this. And then ultimately, this faith is converted into knowledge, into your own certainty. It's, there's no, nothing mysterious about this faith. The same faith you need if you want to go learn mathematics. You check into the, uh, sign up for a course at the U of O, and you walk in there, and the, you, you know, there's all this scribble algebra on the board, and you don't know. It's all Greek to you. You have faith that the professor here knows what she's talking about and that if you sit in the class and you go home and do the exercises, you too will eventually know what she's talking about too. And then there won't be faith in her being a mathematician. It'll be your own certainty and knowing how to do mathematics. That's the only kind of faith that we're talking about here. But it is necessary to learn anything to have faith. Augustine said, who would know must first believe. I mean, you must believe it's worthwhile finding out, you know. I mean, there are other courses around town that are offered that I don't go uh, spend a lot of time finding out about because, frankly, I don't believe that it's going to be worth anything. So we always start when we want to have knowledge with some sort of belief. But finally, and as we're getting to here, the ultimate test of whether mystics are mad is through your own experience. As the mystics say, you must taste for yourself. One of the things that separates mysticism from orthodox religious practices, mystics insist on this. You must taste for yourself. Do, do yes, follow my teachings, do my practices, and then you will know. You know, that's what Jesus said. Follow my teachings, and you'll know the truth for yourself, and the truth will make you free. Shankara said, uh, from the lips of your teacher, you've heard these teachings, and you can read about them in the scriptures. But the only way to really put doubt to rest is for you to have the own the realization within your own heart. Taste for yourself. Mysticism is not just about learning intellectual things. It's about doing practices. And if you don't do the practices, you are never going to know what the mystic's talking about uh, beyond the most superficial level, the kind of level that a lot of uh, modern-day scholars have who never do any of the practice, they study the text and they write all these learned papers about mystics and comparing them. So then they don't understand what's being talked about because they've never done any of the practice. And then finally, uh, you must understand that the truth being communicated here, as all mystics say, is beyond reason. It's beyond words. It's beyond thought. And so no amount of reading, no amount of teaching, no amount of uh, scriptures is ever going to be able to communicate it to you. 
You have to taste for yourself. It's in the nature of things that you have to. It's not that mystics are being sneaky and sly and withholding. They can't communicate it in words. It's just impossible. So then, by investigating your own beliefs, by investigating mysticism more, and by starting to do the practices, uh, most people who've at least gone on this path will testify that you will start to be convinced that mystics aren't just mad. And the more you do the practices, and the more you look into it, and the deeper you get, the more you'll be convinced that mystics really do have something valuable to say. Perhaps something more valuable than anybody else on this planet has ever had to say. But you have to do the work yourself. You have to find out for yourself. Then how to overcome this second obstacle that madness presents, this psychological obstacle. If you start doing these practices, uh, you are going to almost certainly at some point experience a little fear, experience the sense of, well, maybe I'm going mad here. And in fact, this is a more difficult obstacle to overcome because from a worldly point of view, in one sense, mystics are mad. Mystics don't just have different ideas, they experience the world differently. And following a mystical path means that you're it's going to transform not only your ideas, yes, you're going to start thinking about things differently, you're going to start experiencing things differently. Now, here's what Simone Weil, she was a great Christian mystic of this century, writes. We live in a world of unreality and dreams. To give up our imaginary position as the center, to renounce it, not only intellectually, but in the imaginative part of our soul, that means to awaken to what is real and eternal, to see the true light and hear the true silence. A transformation then takes place at the very roots of our sensibility, in our immediate perception of senses of sense impressions and psychological impressions. She's not talking about some just once in a while, you know, having some little experience. She's talking about your your transformation, just the way you perceive the world and the way you psychologically experience the world. She goes on to give an example. She says, it is a transformation analogous to that which takes place in the dusk of evening on a road where we suddenly discern as a tree what we had first seen as a stooping man. You ever walk down a road and you see some man crouching there, maybe at dusk, maybe a little gives you a little, you know, anxiety, and then you look again and you see, oh no, it's a tree. It wasn't a stooping man. A change in your perception, actual perception. There's the rope and the snake, exactly. Uh, or where we suddenly recognize as a rustling of leaves what we thought at first was whispering voices. We see the same colors, we hear the same sounds, but not in the same way. So path, the path, if it's working, will take you away from the familiar world, the world you were socialized into, the world you grew up in. And it, this can produce, and almost certainly will to varying degrees, a certain spiritual or psycho-spiritual crises. You start having different experiences. You might be, have this feeling that you're being guided. You might get actual guidance in dreams. You might have visions. These things do happen on a spiritual path. More importantly, probably, your values will start to change. You won't be so interested in the old things. It's not a question of following Jesus' 
orders about don't take any thought for your, uh, your, what you put on and what you eat and drink, you'll stop being so interested in all that stuff. All that will be reduced to a minimum in your life. It'll be something, you, yes, you have to take some thought because you're going to keep the body going and so forth. But your interests will start to veer off in different directions. You'll, most people find you want to seek more solitude. Your friends will start saying, what's the matter with you, Galen? Are you feeling depressed or something? Maybe you should go see a shrink. You want to just stay home tonight and do what? Oh, you want something on television? No, nothing's on television. I just, what's the matter with Galen? He's getting weird. He's not very social anymore. That's true. <laughs> uh, one can even go through a dark night of the soul, extreme uh, uh, forms of this losing interest in the world about you. The desert experience, it's often called. Here's what Catherine of Genoa has to say about it. I see my soul alienated from all spiritual things that could give it solace and joy. It has no taste for the things of the intellect, will, or memory, and in no manner tends more to one thing than another. In other words, it's all the same to her, you know. Um, Quite still and in a state of siege, the me within finds itself gradually stripped of all those things that in spiritual or bodily form gave it some comfort. And once the last of them has been removed, the soul, understanding that they were at best supportive, turns its back on them completely. She's describing a whole change of values of orientation in life, of what's important to you, what's not important to you the things that you are so interested in, grasp onto, and think are so vital. And eventually there's a loosening of all that and a turning away from all that. Now, all of this can, as it's happening, you know, it's great to read about, but as it's actually happening to you, it can be frightening, and it can feel like you're going mad. So, uh, let me read another a little passage from this little-known mystic describing something just like that. This was, he's beginning to do these crazy meditations, sitting out and staying away from parties and friends and getting interested in other things. And he's sitting out on this, this uh, little clearing behind a cabin he'd rented. Then I feel the earth shift slightly under my feet. I look up. The sky glows, throbs. Across the canyon, the mountains are undulating. The universe seems to be coming apart at the seams. I am terrified and feel like I'm losing all control. I grip my staff tightly, close my eyes. It's true, I'm definitely going insane. Panic. Instinctively, I want to run back to the hill, to the safety of my cabin. But a voice says, no, endure this. There's no place to run to anyway. Very well. If I am to go crazy, let it be here and now. I relax my grip on the staff, sit up, feel muscles uncoil, head expand. I am floating. The lights in the hillsides become jewels. Distant cars pass like meteors and ribbons of silver energy. Matter dissolves into colored waves, and I can no longer feel where my skin ends and the warm breeze begins. Then suddenly I am flooded to the point of tears with a great torrent of love. Now this is, this is what Simone was talking about, a change of how you experience the world. This was very dramatic. It was like went around, you know, forever this but and you and it's a very good example of how it can be kind of frightening you think i'm going mad here so then this raises the question how can we tell the difference you know i mean there are there is such a thing as madness madness in the way the the group uh, for the advancement of psychiatry uh 
you know, talked about it. Not all mad people are mystics. So how can we tell the difference? How can we tell the difference? First of all, you might want to know how you can tell the difference in terms of a teacher going to a teacher, so you don't end up following a Jim Jones or somebody. But really, more importantly, how can you tell the difference in terms of yourself? So what is madness? It's a really good question. We have to remember, madness is always defined in terms of a worldview or a paradigm. There's no such thing as just madness as some sort of absolute category out there. What's mad in one society is not necessarily mad in another society. In shamanic societies, things that shamans do and so forth, or, or normal people do, are quite normal. They're not considered mad at all. So there's a relativity about this whole question of madness. But it is also, and this is important, it's still true, that all cultures can distinguish between mad people and people who are just possessed, as they would say. Madness, this whole business of mental illness, of course, is very specific. The vocabulary and the ideas are very specific to our worldview. But in other worldviews, there's a difference. Are they possessed by demons or are they really possessed by the gods, as Plato wrote about? And there's a big difference, and it's very important to know the difference. Uh, I was reading in one of Iliade's books about uh, the Malaysians. You can distinguish very clearly when someone's possessed by a god or a demon. They know the difference, and they're not confused by that at all. The people in Jesus' world knew the difference between a prophet and someone who's possessed by a devil. They were a little mistaken about Jesus as things turned out, and I'm sure they made some mistakes, just like in our culture, we make some mistakes. Iliade writes about the Yakut shamans. He says, for the Yakut, the perfect shaman must be serious, possess tact. Above all, he must not be presumptuous, proud, ill-tempered. He must feel an inner force in him that does not offend, yet is conscious of its power. So not just everybody who goes bananas among the Yakut is going to be a shaman or considered to be a shaman. So they have standards. Look at this. This is not bad. First of all, to be serious and possess tact. If we use terms from our culture, most mad people in that sense don't possess much tact. Above all, he must not be presumptuous. There's a hint of pridefulness in here and, and ego, you know what I mean? Uh, or ill-tempered, nasty, rude, insulting. You must feel an inner force that does not offend you know, a lot of people you have a sense of charisma that can be very offensive. It doesn't make them spiritual. Charisma itself is not necessarily spiritual. As I like to say, you know, uh, Hitler had a lot of charisma. He did. I once uh, heard a, on the radio an interview with a, an inmate of one of the concentration camps who was drafted into a, a uh, work gang to build a stadium for one of these big rallies the Nazis had, you know, these these pseudo-spiritual rallies, you know, with the little torches and all that. And, he, and then he was around for Hitler's speech. He's a Jew in the concentration camp. And he said, as Hitler spoke, it was all he could do to keep his hand down from going zig heil, zig heil, along with everybody <clears> else. <throat> That's the, charis the power that man had, charismatic power. He's not a mystic, though. He's closer to madness. So... It's very important. There are, there are some people around today, and I've heard some ideas that they're really all mad people. It's just, they're all sort of mystics and they're all spiritual. And all, as our culture is, you know, 
Uh, if we only understood them, all these schizophrenics were, you know, they're really all holy people. I personally don't believe that. I've met in my life quite a few people who have been diagnosed as schizophrenic. I think whatever that means, nobody really knows, but it's a good diagnosis. They aren't, they aren't mystics in that sense. They're not necessarily on a spiritual path. We should learn to make distinctions. Uh, you know, every once in a while you read in the paper, somebody says, you know, they, they butchered their family and they ask them why they did it. So, well, God told me so. You know, that is not the mark necessarily of mysticism. Uh, you don't know always, and we should be careful about judging here. Uh, there's a guy, uh, when I worked at the paint factory down the street, there was this guy, and I still see him around the neighborhood. He's, uh, I would say, a middle-aged guy, it's getting older. And he walks around in all weather, all times, with this cane, and he waves at everybody. And he waves at the cars, and he waves at you, and, and when it's rainy weather, he puts plastic all over himself, you know, and he walks around. He's just, you know, he's like the, that little uh, Chinese figure, Pot, who's that, you know, the... Hotai? Hotai, the god of happiness. Yes, Hotai. You know, he looks just like him. He's always got this big smile and this staff, this cane and all that. And there, you know, I, I haven't stopped to talk to him, I don't know. You could, there are a lot of interpretations. You could say, well, here's a guy, you know, beginning stages of Alzheimer's disease. A lot of Alzheimer's patients operate that way. Or maybe he's just, a, you know, an idiot of God, thoroughly enlightened and <laughs> wandering around just spreading <laughs> bliss and love and joy. We don't know in that case. We need a sacred psychology. And we're in a period, uh, at least in my view, in the world today, where there's a breakdown of the old paradigm, the old worldview, and so we're in the process of trying to build a new one, hopefully one that is going to be uh, uh, understandable, in which both science and mysticism will be understandable. And one of the tasks of that, uh, we need in within that context a sub-paradigm, a psychological paradigm that really takes these things into account, that has as its root this understanding that there, there are these transformations, spiritual transformations that are not crazy in the negative sense. They're not pathological. And we don't really have one yet, as far as I know. In the meantime, there's some good work being done. I mentioned earlier Ken Wilber's books, uh, The Atman Project, for instance, is a good stab at that direction. And he makes a distinction, what he, he calls between the pre and trans fallacy that to confuse a, uh, a kind of, uh, mystical experience that is infantile with one that's mature that comes at the end of life and he tries to separate neurotics and mystics from on that basis and so forth it's worth reading and worth looking at and we don't really have I, I think a solid paradigm yet but there are some things you could look for and they're not so different from what the Yakut knew uh, in Siberia for instance uh, humility rather than arrogance almost everybody on a spiritual path becomes quite humble they start to realize that they don't know. They don't even know as much as they thought they knew before, you know. They're learning, as Lao Tzu said, less and less every day. If, if you find somebody who's on a spiritual path and, or who claims to be a mystic and they're very arrogant, I, I, it's something you could be suspicious of. If they've claimed to be an enlightened mystic and they're very arrogant and self-centered, you can be very suspicious because what they're supposed to realize, there is no self. These aren't infallible rules, by the way. Different mystics have different styles and sometimes use behavior and teachings and whatnot. These are general things to look at. Compassion rather than hatred. If you look through, read through the literature of uh, uh, mystics and people on mystical paths and so forth, they are not generally the ones who, you know, want to take up the sword and kill all the infidels. 
And in their relations and dealings with people, at least they try to, they're struggling and trying to uh, attain compassion and so forth. They're not always successful just because somebody has a little breach of compassion once. That doesn't mean that they're not on a spiritual path. All this is a striving. Simone Weil said this beautifully. She said, particularly about love, she said, we have to understand love is not a state, it's a direction. So you watch somebody's life, what direction are they moving in? Are they moving towards love and compassion? Or are they becoming more and more embittered and hate and full of hate and, you know, uh, want to attack the heretics, the infidels, and everybody else, and arm themselves to the teeth and hold up in little fortresses, you know? Be suspicious. Uh, a, a kind of um, receptivity, I don't know quite the right word, submission, receptivity, rather than an ego inflation. It has to do with that arrogance and humility, I guess, really. But someone on the spiritual path has the sense of, uh, uh, in part, that they're being led. Not that I'm doing. Consistency and not vacillation. Someone on a spiritual path, oh, there are going to be ups and downs and this and that, but someone on a spiritual path and what happens to them in terms of these experiences, uh, especially if they're quite dramatic, like visions and so forth, there is a consistency and a thread that runs through them. There certainly were in mine. Maybe they're powerful dreams they're having. Uh, Hildegard of Biggin is a very good example we mentioned earlier. She had all her life these visions, and she, her whole, the work we have in the library is how they all are very consistent. I must say, they're not all that mystical, they're quite orthodox, but they're very consistent. Unlike the kind of fragmented experiences that schizophrenics usually have, that where they don't hang together. There is no thread, like a theme running through it. There is no sense of a direction. There is no sense of something fundamental happening in a, even though it may have uh, a lot of fireworks, but something unfolding in a quite organic and, and quite logical way in, in, in overall. This is one from the uh, Malaysian people. They always ask where they tell if somebody's possessed or not, is it useful? It's what's being communicated here through a vision or a dream or something like that. Is it useful? You might not know the full use of it, just like you might have a dream. You might not know, have a full, complete interpretation of it. But is it something that you can act on that leads you in a useful way? Those of you who read my book know I had this dream, this Athena dream, for instance. I didn't understand the whole ramifications of it, but there was something useful in that. And I made use of it, you know. So this is another thing, that there's some, in all this, from a, on a spiritual path, these things that happen to you are happening, in a sense, for a reason. And then, finally, I think, and this is very subjective, only you can sort of know, but in almost all spiritual paths, there's some sense of you have to cooperate with it. At least you have to make choices to surrender to it. But you do have those choices along the way. And if, if you're, uh, if you're under a torrent of compulsion where you feel you have no choice, I would be very suspicious that yes, this may be a form of a psychosis or a madness. Even people who are, who are, uh, introduced to this in a very dramatic, sudden fashion, for instance, Ramana Maharshi, the way he, the beginning and the end of his path all in one afternoon, but he had this feeling he was going to die, physically die. There was nothing physically wrong with him. 
And he describes how he went into this experience and he went with this experience and he investigated and he said, okay, now in my mind, I could see I was dead and my body was carried away and he went deeper and deeper and he touched that third world that the Upanishads talk about, that spirit. But along the way, he, when you read it carefully, you see he always has a choice. He chooses, okay, if this is death, I will investigate. I will go. I will find out. And all the way through these uh, experiences, there's, you have a choice. You can always turn back. People who are mad, schizophrenics and so forth, often can't. They don't have a choice. Willy-nilly. Do you know what I mean? Now, that's a paradoxical thing. Your choice is always to, the choice is to surrender. The choice is to, in a certain sense, give up choice. But along the path, along the way, there's always that possibility. So that's the final point you could judge by. And then finally, at the end of the path, and of course, you don't necessarily know this till the end of the path, the path ends in a transformation. And madness usually doesn't. A positive transformation. At best with madness, people can be restored to normal. Do you know what I mean? They can be put on drugs, or sometimes they have spontaneous uh, healings and whatnot. But they they haven't gone anywhere. It's like they've gone on some, they've gotten lost someplace, and they come back here. The mystics, the mystical path leads to a transformation of all this normal so-called experience. So as Iliadi points out, for instance, about shamans, he says, the illness is only a sign of election and proves to be temporary. There is always a cure, a control, an equilibrium brought about by the actual practice of shamanism. So this business of shamans going mad or mystics going mad for a while is a temporary thing. And if you want to use this terminology, the point is that it cures itself. And by the way, in shamanic cultures, this is why a shaman, a medicine man, is a medicine man, can cure because that person's been sick. If you haven't been sick, you can't cure. So it's, it's crucial to that whole process. So the shaman becomes a healer by having himself or herself been sick. Now, you know, sickness here, remember, this is a whole different worldview. It's not exactly the way we mean sickness. It has spiritual, psychological, as well as physical elements in it. This is the same thing true of mystics, though, in general. The path leads to happiness, leads to freedom, leads to the end of delusion. And the only, ultimately, way that you can know this is, to, as I said before, to taste for yourself. Dionysius, one of the great fathers, founders of Christian mysticism, writes, The mystic well knows who is united with the truth, that it is well with him, even though the multitude reproach him as going out of his mind. But he himself truly knows himself to be not, as they imagine, insane, but set free. And, you know, this is the bottom line. This is what the whole thing is about. There is no ultimately objective standard. It's very useful in a relative way to have certain standards and way to judge. But the whole path points to this. The end is only you can determine, and you can only finally determine at the end of the path. And everybody may still think you are mad, as they did Buddha, and they did Muhammad, and they did Jesus, which, as Dini said, you yourself will know you're not mad. So, in that sense... You know, the, uh, it is relative, and the, a spiritual path involves risks. There's no getting around it. Psychological risks, particularly. It's like life. 
And one of the whole points about a spiritual path is to face life. There's nothing guaranteed in life. There's nothing guaranteed on a spiritual path. And often a spiritual path, that's exactly what it's trying to get you to look at. There is no ground of security in any of these ephemeral things. And so you have to be willing to take risks to go on a spiritual path. Courage is the first virtue you need. And willingness to take risks in life and on a spiritual path requires a little madness. And, you know, those of you who have read uh, Zorba the Greek or have seen the movie know that Zorba is one of my favorite examples of this. Zorba, he's this wild Greek character, and uh, fictional character, but uh, wisely written. And at one point he says to this very intellectual friend he has, he's working for his wealth, he says, you know, he says, boss, he says, you have everything except for one thing. He says, a little madness. He says, a man needs a little madness, otherwise... And his friend says, otherwise? And he says, otherwise he doesn't dare cut the rope and be free. So may all you be blessed with that kind of madness. (laughs)